Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, you are worthy. God, we thank you that you are worthy. That you are good. And God, that you're God and that we're not. Thank you so much for that. Amen. Well, it's good to be here this morning, visiting from Minneapolis. And there's a fair amount of you from Minneapolis here, too, visiting. So it's great that you're here, too. We're here because tonight we're not meeting for worship. We decided to come visit you guys, and instead we're going to go into the city, wherever there might be Super Bowl parties, and go as salt and light to those places, and host a couple to invite people to, too. So good to have you Minneapolis folks here, too. Thank you, all friends from St. Paul, for welcoming us here. You know, it's, there was room. That's good. Almost had a problem with communion. There, there almost wasn't enough communion, so thank you. This is like perfect, right up to the amount that we needed for both uh, those who came from Minneapolis, St. Paul, and for the Himalayan Christian Fellowship all to participate in communion together. So that's a really cool opportunity that we get to have to do communion together. We've been going through this series called Christ in You. There it is. Christ in You. And as we've been going through this series, we've been looking, working our way through one, one paragraph at a time, one set of scriptures at a time, asking the question, what does it mean for Christ to be in you? And that's Christ in y'all, just in case you over-personalize that too much. It's Christ in all of us. What does that mean? How does that apply? What was going on in the Colossian church when that happened that caused Paul to write what he wrote, and how does that apply to our lives today? So we've been asking that question as we've been walking through the series, both here in St. Paul and in Minneapolis. We've been walking through it in different ways. If you ever feel like one sermon hits you in a series and you want to go dig a little bit deeper, hop online, listen to the sermon again, or hop over to the other congregation and listen to how that one came out, because they come out different. And God might speak to you in a different way, from a different angle, what he's saying about from the same scripture. So we've been asking the question, what's it mean to have Christ in us? How does that affect our lives? Paul was writing to the Colossian church. Big things had happened. Things had changed. People who didn't know Christ had come to know Christ, and life should have been different. And yet, for many of them, life had gotten more confusing after Christ, new things had been added. Life was actually more difficult and more complicated. I don't know if you've ever had something happen in your life where things changed and you didn't change the way you were doing things and then it got really complicated. You ever been there? So when I first came to the States uh, 14, almost 14 years ago, I'd been speaking Spanish my whole life and English was my second language at that time, really. I was more fluent and articulate in Spanish than in English. So I came to the States and I went to college, which is a real sudden adjustment because they expect you to write things in English when you go to college. And uh, it's a lot different to speak the language than to write it. Anybody here, you've, 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 learned that you've learned English and English is not your first language. You know what I mean. They, they start expecting you to write things. Imagine if you try writing it the way you process thoughts in your first language. Most of us do our sentences. We were just talking about this last night, too. Most of us do our sentences in a different order from different languages. 
So you come to English, and people here that only speak English, by the way, those of you who speak English, if you hear somebody speaking with an accent, don't ever make fun of them. Realize that that probably means they speak more languages than you. So just take that into account when you're like, why do they have that accent? Because they know more languages than you. Okay? So, but it's, it's a struggle to adjust to a different language and to a different way of doing things and a different way of expressing thought. And you can come from one place where you're really articulate. And you come to a different language and, and you're trying to express yourself and it's not making as much sense or it doesn't sound quite as articulate. And I was doing that in Spanish. You sound really educated if you lose, use lots of commas and you have very long sentences. So if you wanted to impress your professor, you found ways of writing these complex thoughts that were just kind of interconnected all the way through with a ton of commas. I did that in English, and I got bad grades. <laughs> and I, it, was a, it was a moment of awakening as I, as I hit college, and I was used to getting good grades, and then all of a sudden I'm writing these papers, and they're returning them with full of red, red, red pen. And back when they used that, because I don't even know if they grade papers with pens anymore. Uh, but I'm getting all these red pen marks and finally called out for help. And I found different friends that, would, that were going to help me. And one, for, one set of friends well, were trying to get me to learn all of the rules of the English language. Like, that's going to help. Because if you know the English language, sometimes it just doesn't make sense. There are some things that we say that just don't make sense, like, and even w words that we use to describe things, like, why do we park on the driveway and drive on the parkway? Right? It doesn't make sense. Or a fat chance and a slim chance being pretty much the same thing? Doesn't make sense. But then the rules, there are so many rules to the English language. If you try to learn them, and that's how you're going to get it right, I'm just going to memorize all the rules. I tried that. It was really hard. And it wasn't working for me, but then I had this other friend who came alongside. I mean, they were homeschooled, and they did know all the rules. And, uh, but instead of getting me to learn all of the rules, they said, well, why don't you write like you talk? Write as you would speak in English, and don't try to sound smarter than you are. I'm like, well, there's an idea. <laughs> so I started writing as I would normally speak, because I could communicate in English when I was speaking, but when I went to writing, it got really confusing. And then my friend sat down and began to explain all these spots where I, w I was using commas where there should have been periods, and everything started to make sense, but they didn't start with the memorize all the rules approach. They started with, well, we'll just start beginning to express yourself like you normally would. Don't try to sound smart. Don't try to be something that you're not. And don't try to do it the way you used to do it. Because if you try to write and think the way you did in Spanish, it's not going to work in English. Because it's different. Things are different. And I don't know if you've ever found yourself in that place where things are different and you're still trying to do it the old way. Like when I came to the States, it, was, it took one stop sign to realize that things are different here. <laughs> one stop sign and somebody laying on the horn as they went by like, whoa, you actually have to stop here. That was different, but I remembered that after that. <laughs> Things were different. I couldn't do it the way I had done it before. It's not a yield sign. One person said, if the English language made any sense, a catastrophe would be an apostrophe with fur. 
But anyway, back to, back to my story. All of the rules and regulations weren't going to be the way for me to learn how to do it. I had to begin to think differently. I had to begin to think in English and begin to try to just express myself the way I would naturally speak in English because I had learned how to do that. I just hadn't moved from, my, from using words spoken to written. So they helped me do that without focusing on the rules and regulations for it. And sometimes change in our lives happens and we don't change how we do things. That was what was going on with the Colossian church. Stuff had changed. They hadn't changed how they were doing things. And in fact, some people had come and had begun to tell them all of these rules and regulations that weren't even right. You ever have people, semicolons and colons, ask, ask like three people how they should be used correctly and they won't agree. It's one of those things. And people, people are out there giving advice on things and it's totally wrong. And you could follow their advice and find out later that it's totally wrong. I've, I've had people give me advice on a new way to live, like, you know, when we didn't have kids and suddenly we had kids, people gave me parenting advice. Some of it was really bad. Like, people are going to try to tell you things, and it could be just really bad advice. I've had people give me financial advice that was terrible. Fortunately, I had other voices speaking into my life that I was able to discern, that's a really bad idea. If I live like that, I'm going to go broke. Well, that's what happened with the Colossian church. Things had changed. They're trying to figure out what's different, how do we live now, and then somebody came in and started giving them really bad advice giving them a bunch of rules and regulations and ways of doing things that weren't even right. I mean, it wouldn't have been so bad if they would have been the right way, the right things, but they were coming about it the wrong way. But it was just totally wrong. So that's where we're at in the book of Colossians. And I want to invite you to go to Colossians chapter 2, verse 6 through 23. The book of Colossians chapter 2. Verses 6 through 23. And this is a little bit of a, of a stretch. But I'm going to ask you, if you're able to, to take a little bit of a stretch and stand up with me. As we read through this passage together, just out of reverence for the word of God, if you're able to. It says, verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, 
or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great deal about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have spoken to us through your word. We ask, God, that you would make it alive to us right now. Open our eyes to see what you want us to see in, in, in your word and our ears to hear what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right, so that's quite the, quite the passage, quite the chunk that we're going to deal with tonight. Tonight, I'm so used to the evening service. This morning. We're going to walk through this together. Starting in verse 6. It says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. How did they receive Christ? Previously? Freely, by faith. It wasn't something that they had to work for. So in that same way, continue to live your lives in him. Rooted and built up. So that's the whole theme for the year, growing maturity. We're putting our roots down and our branches out, and we're going to produce fruit. Because when something is mature, it bears fruit. So that's, that's the picture that's happening here in Colossians. But he digs a little deeper. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. These philosophies that, we, that he's talking about were probably a mix of Gnostic and Essene traditions. The Essenes were, like the Pharisees, a sect of the Jews, but they had taken it to a whole other level. And these teachings were beginning to affect Christian thought. And it was almost like the Pharisees on steroids in Christian context. Mixed with a little bit of superstition of Gnosticism. Just add a dash of, you know, speaking with these spiritual realities and these, these angels. Conversations with angels. We'll just throw that in there. And in an attempt to... What, what, what was happening, if you notice in Colossians, he's making a real big emphasis on the supremacy of Christ, and he's emphasizing a lot about Christ because what they had done was they had changed who Christ was and how they spoke of him. That was the Gnostic influence. Christ is somehow more detached from us. He's like this spiritual reality out there. And there are actually some angels and spirits and intermediaries that we have to get involved in. And we, if you really know the truth, then you know how to have access to Christ. Does that make sense? They had this, this, these weird teachings that they were piling up on top of it. So it, Paul's coming back and going, no, it's about Christ. He is all of this. He is 
everywhere. He's involved in everything. He's the head of the body, which means we're directly connected to him. So you can go straight to Christ. You don't need all of these other things, all of these other rules and regulations that they were coming and putting on top of these, these, this new church. And they, in their thought, they were claiming to elevate Christ. But the way they were doing, by distancing him, and the way they were doing it was actually, it was creating this false thing. So then you have to live up to it by, by this, these standards of discipline and works so that you can attain proper knowledge and you can know the right stuff. Sometimes we do that in Christian circles. Like what makes you spiritual as a Christian? You know the right stuff. Kind of what they were dealing with. But they had separated Christ out, so, so Paul's writing to, to bring Christ back to the center of their lives and of their experience and to get rid of some of these trappings, these extra rules and regulations that weren't leading to life. In fact, they were leading to bondage. They were false. They were bad guidance. So he's calling it out as such. Then he says in verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to the fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. That's the reference to those powers and authorities, this mystical things that they had between us and Christ. He's like, he's the head over everything. Angels and demons, it doesn't matter. He's the head. We don't need to go through those or need to know what their names are. We can go right to Christ because he has all power and all authority. Verse 11, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through your faith in the working of God. That's really important because he's contrasting that with our faith in our own works. So the faith is in God's work who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive. Once again, another reference that it cannot be done by us. It's all about God and his power and his working. He forgave us all our sins having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You were raised to a new life in Christ. It's time to stop living like you're dead, is what he's saying. It's a new life. And it wasn't by your own work, it was by your faith in his work that you're raised to a new life. So it's not about striving to attain something anymore. You have to live different because when you're dead, there are certain things happening in your body. And when you're alive, there are different things happening in your body. When you're dead, there are certain things that you can't do. When you're alive, there's a whole bunch of stuff that you can do. So it's not a call to more constraining and more rules and regulations. Like when you're dead, you don't move. When you're alive, you're active and moving. The rules and regulations that they were putting on these, this newly alive church and these newly alive peoples were constraining them and making them act and live as if they were dead. But he's saying you were already dead. Don't live like that anymore. Don't think like that anymore. Why? Because he disarmed all, all rulers, all authorities. He disarmed, disarmed all the powers. The, the maximum authority in your life is Jesus Christ. Not any of these other things that you've been told. So he goes on to say to them, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, 
or with regards to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. The word judge you there is uh, like an umpire judging a pitch, disqualifying. Let, don't let anybody disqualify you because of new moon festivals and Sabbaths. Don't let them disqualify you by what you eat or by what you drink or by whether or not you went to this religious festival. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So all of these things that you've been doing or that you were told you needed to do, it's not even about that. It's about Christ. The reality is found in Christ. So he goes on to tell them, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. So he's saying, don't let anyone disqualify you, especially if they delight in false humility. So they act really pious and really spiritual, and they delight in the worship of angels, which was this whole going to these intermediaries before going to Christ. He's like, if they're doing that, don't listen to what they're saying. Don't let them disqualify you. Such a person goes into great deal about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions of their unspiritual mind, which is funny. He's calling them out as unspiritual, but in their minds, they were very spiritual. They were the spiritual ones. They had the right knowledge. They had the right experience. And he's saying their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. So these people had been following rituals And they had been telling others and teaching others to follow these rituals and saying, you're more spiritual if you do these rituals. You're more spiritual if you follow these rules and these regulations. And Paul's saying, these didn't even matter anymore. They were just, they served in the past to point us towards Christ. It doesn't matter anymore. It's like, no, you're more spiritual if you burden yourself with this thing. Then God will see your pious heart. It's like, no, it's not about that. He was saying this religion that they had is false. Which led to a detached spirituality where they had this, they they could keep all the external things, all the rituals, all the religious festivities, all the stuff on the outside. But it wasn't affecting their hearts because he said it's a false humility. So when they act to be pious, it's false. When they act like they're spiritual and loving, it's false. Because on the outside, they want to keep all the rules and regulations, but they don't want their heart to be changed. The thing about rules and regulations, it gives us this this false sense of control. Because we can measure it. Have I done these things? So this was was happening to the early church here. And it it was a mix of Jewish and Gnostic works that were getting thrown on top of them that they had to do. And that was their checklist, but we do it too. We can fall into the same thing where we have our checklist of spiritual things that are externally observable. And if we can do these things on the outside, then we're right with God. Then we're spiritual. And I think in here we can apply this to our life saying it's not about that. It's about the heart. The reality is found in Christ. It's not about what's on the outside. But we can add this list of rules and regulations and we can bind ourselves down And we're living like we're dead. And people look at our lives, and they're like, why would I want to be a Christian? I feel more alive right now than you look. Why do I want to be that? Because you're bound up. But if 
we're, we've been set free and we're living free. It's appealing. It may, it's, it's something interesting. It's attractive. You go, you have something that I want. That's what Paul was telling them. Don't live bound anymore. Live free because God made you free. But with these externally observable things, we can get caught up in that. And we get caught up in works mentality too. Well, if I just do these Christian things and I go to these church activities and I do this spiritual stuff and we can go through the motions for years and never let God affect our hearts. He goes on to say in verse 20, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. They were putting rules on the church that seemed spiritual. Seems like a good idea. Well, yeah, I mean, pray a lot. Pray this many times. Well, then it becomes a checklist. And it seems like a good idea, but then you miss the heart. So I look at some forms of traditional Christianity that are thousands of years old now, and I see, I see the, the, the rote, the ritual. And I, I, I'm really interested in going back to where it started. And I can see when it seemed like a good idea. Like, whoa, I could see why you would do it that way. Because this was the heart originally, but then we began to impose one person's heart or one person's expression of faith on everybody. One size fits all. People begin to do things. They don't even know why they're doing it. Well, why do you pray that way? I don't know. That's the way I was taught. Well, why do you kneel here? I don't know. That's just what you do. Why do you bless yourself in that direction? Well, I don't know. That's just what you do. Why do you pray those prayers? I don't know. We can do that, and at some point it was a good idea. Somebody might have taught you how to pray a prayer before bed. And it was, it's, but then it's become this religious thing where your, your mouth is moving, but your heart's not in it. Maybe it's... I remember praying for our food growing up, and I've tried to switch it up with my kids so that they, 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 they don't do the same thing that I did. But growing up, at some point along the way, I found a prayer that worked really well for meals. I think it went like this. Father, thank you for this food. I'm blessed this food to strengthen my body. Amen. And I could say it faster than that. But I found a good prayer that worked for, for food, and I just, boom! Did you pray? Yes. I fulfilled my religious requirement for my food. Father, thank you for this food. Bless this food. Amen. I have one kid that kind of does that. He's like, amen. What? For him, he's fulfilling the requirement. Everybody else around the table prays for the food. I'm going to pray for the food too. Amen. But it misses the heart. It misses the thankfulness of coming to our food. We can do the same thing with worship. We come and, well, what do you do? Well, you sing songs, you clap. I'm going to do it. I'm singing songs, I'm clapping. Totally missed it. Because our heart wasn't in it. We were doing the external things. We felt good about it. It's like, I went to worship today. I've only missed church once this week because if I was counting by the month, then I'd feel bad, you know. But 
You know what I mean? It's like, oh, man, I'm one out of, oh, I'm only one out of four this month. I'm going to have to. And then our, it's, it's all works-based. Instead of, man, I want to worship. I want to be with the family of God. Something changes inside. But when it's about the external things, we actually do it less if we're measuring the external stuff. So it's like, okay, the measure of spirituality is be in church on Sunday. So you'll find that stuff happens when you feel like you have to be in church on Sunday. Stuff happens. Then you don't show up. Then you feel guilty about not showing up. So then but I'm going to do better next time. I'm going to do better. And the, but because it, it's a measure of my spirituality. It's a reflection on where my heart is. So I'm just going to try harder. And stuff happens. But when something inside of you is like, man, I, I'm going to worship on Sunday. I get to worship. I'm not keeping track or any, like a, like a scorecard. So I'm 0 for 4. Like, you know, like if you're following the Timberwolves and there's, you know, it's, it's, not, like, it's not like that. You're, you, you're excited to, like tonight, those of you who like football, you will be there for the Super Bowl. Right? You're going to be watching TV tonight. If you like football, you're going to be there. Right? Stuff could happen. Stuff could make you late. But you're going to be there. You'll find a way. You'll be watching the score on your phone if you're not able to. I mean, you might be going. This is true for those. You might have to leave for a few minutes, and maybe you're in the bathroom. You might be checking the score in the bathroom (laughs) just in case you miss something or live streaming it on your phone. Because you don't want to miss it. Because you love it. You enjoy it. Totally different than if somebody told you you got to be at the Super Bowl party tonight. Man, i got to be there. i got all these other things I could do. I guess I should go. Something will happen. But you get what I mean? So I'm going to measure my, my spirituality by whether or not I participate in these negative activities. Because at some point somebody said, probably in, in good heart and good intention, these things aren't a good idea. They can hurt you, and very true. They will hurt you. They'll hurt other people around you if you do them unwisely. So what's easier? Just don't do them at all. Well, that's easier because it gives us a sense of control, and it's, it's measurable. We can say, well, there was, instead of knowing whether or not I'm doing this with discernment or, or with, within, um, with, with wisdom and without excess, I'm just not going to do it at all. Then I feel better about it. But the problem is, if you still want to do them or you still think you, it, it has, what's it say at the end here? These things lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So it's just like this checklist of things that I don't do. But then we're, we're fighting this. But I, and then I had a friend who, instead of being taught about, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go there. Hopefully it's not bad, but this is not me saying, go and do this. This is me saying, let's use discernment, Okay had been taught, alcohol is always evil. It's a sin. It's horrible. And I'm going, wait, like half the church in the world takes communion with wine, not grape juice like we do. How does that work? But anyway, so my friend had been raised that way, and I was raised that way, by the way. And this one time, he went out, and he was in college, and drank, and he had one drink. Guilt and shame overcame him, which led him back into more. 
they have, they, they look like this is, this is good. It's good to have these clear-cut black and white line down the middle division. But then those people go to the scripture and go like, but I don't actually see it clearly outlined the way I was told. Exactly. Boom, boom. Another one like speeding, right? We're just, just like, you don't go over because it's sin. You've all sinned. You probably sinned today <laughs> on your way here. But if you go, all right, that is not, speeding is bad because it's dangerous, because you could get a ticket for it. It's not legal. But you probably sped. Did you, were you confessing your sin on the way in? Like, probably not. You were thinking, I want to drive safe, right? I hope. Is that making sense? So instead of, instead of teaching, let's, let's teach discernment. Let's teach uh, discipline, spiritual discipline, self-discipline. It's easier to say, this is wrong, 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 and this is right, this is right, this is right, this is right, and then have a checklist. And we try to live by the checklist, but if you've done it, it's actually harder. It's more constraining, and it feels like you're not moving and now somebody can say, though, somebody that's been taught, I'll go back to the alcohol thing because people actually say that the church never talks about it, so I'll talk about it. Um, not this church, just the church in general. We could say, with, with, and, and actually be right on accurate with Scripture, it's, it's okay if you're not doing it with, um, with an, without excess, if you're not getting drunk. But all these other Scriptures say it's not wise, it's probably wine is a mocker and beer is a brawler. Uh, but they did do it in the Bible. Like, Paul told Timothy to drink some. So how do you reconcile all those things? But you can lay it out there and say, this is what it says. Use discernment in it. It might actually lead somebody to go, and I don't want to do it. Because I realize it might not be a good idea. Or for me, which is many cases the case, people would say, for me, it's a really bad idea. I've, I've talked to people who are recovering from alcoholism and other addictions, they say, I cannot do that. That's wisdom. That's restraint. That's discernment. Does that make sense? But it kind of makes you want to not do that. I had a coworker who was not a Christian. He was far from Christ. But he's like, I've been sober for uh, four years, I think it was. I'm like, tell me about that. Well, I found that whenever I got drunk, I ended up hurting my life worse, and I hurt other people. This is a guy who's not a Christian. But the motivation for not doing it was because I, I don't want to do it, not I can't do it. Do you see the difference? I picked on alcohol because it's such a big deal, and some of you are going to go home and argue about it and disagree with me. That's okay. I would encourage you to go back to Scripture and use discernment because it would be easier for me and for Pastor Jim and any other pastor to say, these are the wrong things, these are the right things, do that. But then it becomes, I cannot do these things, and I have to do these things. Instead of, I don't want to do these things, and I get to do these things. Do you see the difference? I have freedom to choose to make wise decisions. Instead of being forced to make wise decisions, and then living guilt, with guilt when I don't. So when I'm driving and I'm speeding, I had a choice to make a wise decision or not to make one. And when the police pull me over, 
I have to live with my unwise decision. But nobody forced me, husbands and wives. If there's a relationship where, say, the, the husband feels liberally about speeding and the wife doesn't, or vice versa, when you're driving and the other one is speeding and the, other one, the one inside that doesn't agree is going, you're speeding, you're speeding, you're going to get a ticket. Does that ever help? Does that make them go, oh, now I want to slow down. They probably speed up and go, like, let me I'll show you. And then when they get the ticket, they go, told you. Does that bring them closer together? But sometimes we think about God like that person sitting in the, in the passenger seat, which is wrong on, on a couple levels. Uh, but God is sitting there going, you're going too fast. You're going to crash. Something bad happens in your life, and God's saying, I told you. That's wrong. For starters, he should be the one driving. And he doesn't take that approach of like, I told you so. But in fact, he's giving us freedom to learn. Like when those of you who are parents, you have kids, and you let them fail in order to, for them to learn something. And it's an, actually an act of love to let them make the mistake. And when they come because they hurt themselves, not going, I told you, it's really hard for me to do that. Because my kids are running around the house, and it's one of those things like, this is not new. It's not like we decided today, no running in the house. We've been saying this Ever. And we've been enforcing consequences for this. And it hasn't gone well for them. And the consequences are there in love to help them not run. But at some point, it's going to hit them. It's not worth it. So it's hard for me when they're running and they fall down and smack their face on the wall to go, I told you not to run. Right? But when we switch the way we're doing it and we go back to this, where the guidelines or to help us make wise decisions, we can still be there as loving comfort and say, I'm so sorry you hurt yourself. We could probably ask the question, why do you think that happened? <laughs> but it's really hard not to be the I told you so because sometimes we do that because we believe God's like that. We think God is sitting up there going, I told you so. Don't do that! Instead of God presenting you with options and saying, I, you have freedom to choose. It's here and it's in other places in Scripture. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, that type of thinking. Where God's saying, you have freedom. When, when the thing came down, the, 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 the sheet came down from heaven for Peter, he said, take and eat. I can't do that. And he said, yeah, you can. You have freedom now. But wise choices would be that maybe four quarter pounders are a bad choice but you still have freedom to have a quarter pounder. Does that make sense? Okay. I think everyone got it. They, these rules seem wise, but in the end, they're useless, harmful, and wrong sometimes. Totally wrong. But they started with wise motivation. So I want to encourage you, let's use discernment to be free in Christ. So here are the things that they were struggling with. They had put their faith in rituals and religion. They hadn't put their faith in Christ. They had put their faith in rules and regulations instead of in Christ. Living in bondage to legalism. Man, whether it was intended in my church upbringing or not, I think this is 
whether they wanted to or not. I don't think they were preaching legalism, but that's what I was getting. And I grew up to be a real legalist about everything because I thought God was sitting. I was, I was in the driver's seat, and God was sitting there going, you're going too fast. Slow down. You're doing it wrong. Do it this way. And I had a wrong view of God, which is what they had. And this church had a wrong view of God. That's why Paul was saying, this is who Christ is. He really is holding everything together. The whole universe, he's that big. Do you think he's worried about this Sabbath festival, which in fact Jesus had said was made for you, not for him? It's not about, well, God will understand. It's for you. You're only hurting yourself. The wise choice to do to, would be to take Sabbath. It's for you. But they're like, man, like, I'm not pleasing God. I didn't keep the Sabbath. I walked too far by like 0.1 miles. God is angry, and he's like, it's not even for him. He's holding the universe together. He's not worried about that, but it's for you. It's a wise choice, and it's a good thing for you. Okay. Instead of putting their faith in Christ, which brings us to liberty, when we put our faith in Christ and what he's accomplished, we're free to live. We're not bound up anymore. We don't have to live like we're dead. We don't have to live the way we used to live. We get to learn a new way of living. Kind of like me, when I came to the States, I had to learn a new way of speaking. I had to learn a new way of writing. But when people tried to teach me with rules and regulations, that actually discouraged me and made me not like the English language. But when somebody came and said, well, just begin to express yourself, and then write it down that way. I'm like, oh, okay, that's a lot easier. And then they coached me. They came alongside and said, well, this is a better way to do this. Here, switch this sentence, start. I was doing it backwards. Those of you who come from a language that, that, that changes the order, like to English, it's backwards. I was writing that way in English. And he showed me that. My friend did. Helped me switch it, and I got it. But it wasn't like, well, that's because of this rule and this rule and this rule. I didn't even get into that. Now I can like edit people's stuff and I know what's wrong and I know what's right, but I couldn't tell you which rule it was. But I know how to do it right. Does that make sense? It's in here. I look at it and I'm like, that's wrong. It needs a comma right there. That actually should be a semicolon. But it's in here, not in here. We will always live what we believe. So if we believe that those things are the things that save us, that those things are the the true measures of spirituality, then that's how we're going to live. But if we believe that our faith put in Jesus Christ alone is what saves us, then we're free to live how he wants us to live and free to make choices and even get it wrong. And he's right there. He's not going, you did the wrong thing. But he's actually there in, like, like the parent who picks up the child who ran into the wall because they were running too fast and says, are you okay? Are you bleeding? Let's get a Band-Aid. All right, go back to playing. Maybe slow down next time. That's where we need to put our faith is in Christ, not in these other things that give us the sense of having control. So this morning, I want to encourage you to live in freedom. If you've been bound by your own, which often happens, our own sets of expectations as to what's necessary, 
And it's actually put you in the place of, I have to do this. Instead of, I get to do this, I have to evangelize. Because that's what good Christians do. Man, you get to evangelize because that's what Christians do because there's something good to talk about. If you've got good news, you tell people about it. I have to worship. You get to worship. But if you've been living, whether you've thought about it or not, with a set of to-dos, Christian spiritual to-dos, I want to encourage you to let go of that and be free. Have an encounter with the Christ that Colossians talks about. So when you encounter Christ as Colossians talks about him, you want to worship. You want to live a life that's worthy of the calling that we have received. You want to live a life that's worthy of the Lord. You want to tell people about this Christ. So if you're living by a, by a set of this, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this, instead of I get to do this, I want to encourage you to let go of that and have an encounter with Christ. It's going to take a couple minutes for you to talk to God. How many this morning, if you look at your life, you could honestly say, I have a list. Of, it doesn't have to be your whole faith is placed in these things, but there are some things in your life that you know are good, but your approach to them is, I have to. You, and, and there are these things in your life that you know aren't wise, and your approach to them, in, instead of, that's not a good idea, or I don't want to do that anymore because God changed my heart, it's, I can't. Then let's take a moment right now and have an encounter with Christ. The Christ of Colossians, the one who is head over all things. The one who holds all things together. And ask him to change our hearts because that's what it's about. Doing the external stuff doesn't even matter. It's if our hearts are changed. So coming to him and say, God, you see what's in my heart. You see how I struggle with this. And I've been, I've been trying as hard as I can and it hasn't worked. God, change my heart so that your desires become my desires. Help me to want what you want. Help me to live the way you want me to live. We've got to let that desire flow out of who you have made me to be, who I really am, alive in you and not bound by laws, not bound by legalism, but free to live. And as, as the worship team plays, pray that. In your own words, in your own way, ask God to change your desires, to align your desires with his. Even as that song says, give us strength to live for you. It's living in freedom to choose life, to choose. He's made you free. From shame. He's made you free from the guilt of sin. Bring it to him and be done with it. The shame of sin. Bring it to Him and be done with it. I want to pray a benediction over you just based on this scripture that we just read. If you want with open hands to receive the benediction. But Holy Spirit, I ask that you would fill us with your power to choose 
what you want us to choose because we want to choose it. God, that you would change our hearts to be like yours, that we would love what you love and hate what you hate and be free to live on the other things, not bound with rules and regulations made up by humans. To live free from shame, to live free from condemnation, to live free from addiction, to live free from all of these things. May your Holy Spirit empower us to live, to hear what you want us to hear, to see what you want us to see, to be who you've called us to be, and to do the things you've called us to do. God, that as we go from this place, we would radiate life and joy into every place that you've planted us. And that your peace that passes understanding would guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus as your kingdom comes, as your will is done in and through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.